You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, it is to your word that we now turn, and we ask that in your word we might behold the state of our own hearts and the glory of our God. We thank you for your word, which is clear to us and clearly reveals your will and your character, your nature, and it is our desire that we might behold that today and that you would open our eyes that we may behold in your word wonderful things. It is in your light that we see light, and we pray now that by the unfolding of your word you would bring us light. And help us and assist us, we pray, not only to understand, but also to obey your word, incline our hearts to you, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. One of the most disturbing or tragic statements in all of the Gospel of John is a a very dark note that is hit in the prologue of John's Gospel in chapter 1, when John, in describing the, the light of the glory of the incarnate word, says in John 1 that that word came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. That is one of the most tragic statements in all the Gospel of John, because it it sort of strikes a note that that is heard all the way through the Gospel of John, and now we're only in chapter 7, but we have to confess that we have seen plenty of unbelief in John's Gospel so far. Uh, He came unto his own, to his own nation, to his own temple, to his own people, whom he redeemed from slavery. He came to his his own... um, priesthood. He came to all that was his, his his world, his people, everything in it was his. It belonged to him. And he came to it, and they rejected him. And John's gospel is really a story of not just belief, but also rejection. And for a gospel that is written to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to convince us to believe in him so that we might have life in his name, this gospel contains a lot of unbelief. In fact, really, it is belief that is a rare and yet refreshing note whenever we see it in John's Gospel, because unbelief is so much the characteristic of people's response that when we see somebody who believes in John's Gospel, it's like a drop of fresh water to a thirsty tongue, a parched throat. And it's really a rare thing, belief in John's Gospel. We see it with the disciples. We saw it with the woman at the well. We see it with the Samaritan village. But then most everything else is unbelief. Right? He comes to his own and his own doesn't receive him. Nicodemus is wary of him and Nicodemus walks away from all we can tell, an unbeliever. Jesus is rejected by the leadership of the nation in chapter 5, by the multitudes in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7 we read that his brothers were not even believing in him and the Jews were seeking to kill him. So by the time we reach chapter 7, there is this dark and foreboding cloud that sort of hangs over the atmosphere and all of the events there. As chapter 7 begins with the Jews seeking to kill Jesus, his brothers not believing in him, and the Feast of Booths is near. And chapter 7 comes six months before the death of Jesus. And so as we reach chapter 7, we know this is the Feast of Booths is near. Six months from Passover. This is the last Passover in the life of Jesus. So the stage is being set. The players are in place. The Jews hate him. The Jews want to kill him. Everybody does not believe in him. The multitudes and the crowds are divided over him. Some people think wanting to hear more of him. Other people thinking he is a deceiver. And so the, the stage is sort of being set for this final drama where the Lord is going to die in only six months' time. And we saw last week how the brothers expressed their unbelief and rejection of Jesus and what his response to them was. His brothers challenged him to go up to the feast and to present himself before the people, make some public display of his power and his claims so the people would believe in him. 
And Jesus responded to that by saying, you and I have a different relationship to the Father's timing, different perspective on that. Jesus said, your time is always opportune. My time is in the hands of the Father. It's not yet. You can go up any time you want, but I live my life in accordance with the timetable that the Father has determined for me. And then we saw they had a different relationship to the world. Jesus said, the world cannot hate you because you don't testify of it that its deeds are evil, but me the world hates because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. There is nothing like a holy life that will so infuriate the wrath of the world and, and get their ire up as there's nothing else like it. And Jesus says that. I testify of the world that his deeds were evil, and for that reason, the world hates me. And then we got to the end of verse 9 last week of chapter 7, and we saw how Jesus talks about them having a different manner of attending the feast. You go up to the feast. Your time is here. You don't have to be concerned with the Jews seeking to kill you or the world hating you. You go on up to the feast. My time has not yet come. So now we come to verse 10, and we're going to look. This is Jesus' final trip down south to Jerusalem. He leaves Galilee. This is his last venture, his last journey, his last trip to Jerusalem. And this last trip to Jerusalem is going to be about six months prior to his death. And during that six-month period of time between the beginning of chapter 7 and the end of chapter 11, during that six months, he's going to stay in the southern regions of the nation, still avoiding the Jews, staying a lot out of the city of Jerusalem, until the time would come when he would present himself openly as the Messiah and come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, be presented as the king, as the savior of the nation. And until that time, he is going to stay in the southern regions. He leaves with his disciples. And this arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, his last trip, really all of the events in verses 10 through 13, which we're looking at today, focus or revolve around three people and their actions or reactions. Three persons and their actions or reactions. The first, of course, is Jesus. He secretly attends the feast in Jerusalem. Second, we notice in verses in verse 11, the reaction of the Jews who were seeking to kill him. And then in verses 12 and 13, we see how the people were speaking about Jesus at the feast. So let's read verses 10 through 13 together, and then we'll dive into chapter 10 and look at the action of Jesus and what he did and why he did it. Verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Verse 11, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. I mentioned last week as we as we wrapped up, sort of a little of a dilemma between verses 8 and verse 10. You notice in verse 8 when Jesus is responding to his brothers, he says to them, go up to the feast because, uh, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. But then in verse 10, he goes to the feast. And I asked you last week, how is it, and this causes a lot of consternation for some people, and I think needlessly so, that he seems to imply or say in verse 8 that he's not going to the feast, but then in verse 10 that he does go to the feast. What's going on there between those two verses? Does he, between verse 8 and verse 10, change his mind? Did he lie to his brothers in verse 8? I can hardly let those words roll off my tongue. He did lie to his brothers in verse 8, and he didn't change his mind between verse 8 and verse 10. Really, the key is in the statement that his brothers made to him and what Jesus was answering. And you've got to go back a little bit, and this is why I reviewed at the beginning. His brothers had said, come on up to the feast, and the implication was, with us. Come up to the feast with us, with your family, and present yourself to the world. Nobody who seeks to be known publicly hides himself 
So come up to the feast where all of the Jews will be gathered at the Feast of Tabernacles. They're all coming back for that one event. And do some power, some work. Since you do these things, do these things before the eyes of the entire nation so that people will believe on you. What they were encouraging him to do was to come up and to present himself with some display of power, some majestic demonstration of his claims in his person, which would be intended to convince unbelievers of who he was and those who were maybe apathetic as to who he was. Jesus is answering that when he says to his brothers, I'm not going up to the feast. And the implication is, as you have suggested, he's answering their suggestion. He's not saying he's not going to go up to the feast at all. He's saying, I'm not going to go up to the feast in the manner that you've suggested and not for the purpose that you have suggested and not to do the things that you have suggested. He's going up to the feast, but not at that time because his time had not yet come. Jesus was going up with, uh, his brothers were suggesting that Jesus go up with them. He's going to wait until they leave, till they're gone. Then Jesus would go up to the feast, but he would go up secretly. Why would he do that? Why would he wait? There's a few practical reasons for this, and let me just suggest one of them that I think kind of hits really at the heart of the issue. There's a practical reason why Jesus would wait before going up to the feast. And here it is. If he went up with his brothers, he would arrive before the feast began, probably maybe even days or a week or more before the feast began, and they would be there, they would be preparing that, they would be building the tabernacles out in the patios and the the porticos and all that stuff that went with the Feast of Tabernacles, getting ready for that celebration, acquiring the sacrifices necessary for that, and participating in all the build-up for that. So they'd be getting ready for that, and they would get there long before the feast began. If Jesus had arrived with his brothers, he would have given more than ample time and opportunity for the Sanhedrin and the Jews and the high priests and the Pharisees to plan his arrest and to plan his murder and to put a plan into motion. Instead, Jesus will wait until basically everybody from the nation has already arrived in Jerusalem, and then he will go quietly with his disciples, not wanting anybody else to know, so that he could arrive in Jerusalem and take the Jewish leadership by surprise, as it were. They wouldn't see him coming. And when he finally arrived and finally manifested himself, which in verse 14 says was about midway through the feast, so probably the middle of the week before he goes into the temple and really begins to teach publicly, by that time it's already too late for them to put into into action any plan to arrest him. Jesus is being very judicious and wise in how he does go up up to the feast. And I want you to notice here how the means and the end are married in Jesus's actions. How the means and the end are married. I want you to notice this because this is key. Jesus knew exactly the day of his death, when it would be. He wasn't going to die before Passover. That was the Father's plan. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it up on my own accord. He was completely in control of the timing and the means and the manner and the day and the place and all of the events surrounding his death. That's how John portrays the Lord Jesus. He is sovereignly in control of all of this. None of it is by accident. All of it is by the Father's design. So he knows he's not going to die one moment prior to his time, one day prior to his time. But yet at the same time, the Lord does not rush in reckless abandon into danger. Do you notice that? There is a prudence and a wisdom and a a judicious way of approaching the danger that Jesus employs. Just because he knows when his time is does not mean that he just runs recklessly into danger. So this is this is not cowardice. Jesus staying away is not cowardice cloaked as wisdom. And it's not foolishness cloaked as faith. He never... He never feared men. He never ran away from men. He never avoided his duty or danger. But at the same time, he didn't rush headlong into it. And friends, those are two extremes that you and I have to, you and I have to walk between. There are times when danger presents itself and we avoid it because we're cowards. And we cloak it in the language of piety or wisdom. Well, it wouldn't be prudent. Not at this juncture. Not at this time. Don't want to do that now. It wouldn't be the wise course of action. Really, it's just cowardice. It's cowardice cloaked 
in the language of wisdom. On the other hand, I have known people, and there are times when we can rush headlong into folly and danger and cloak it with the language of faith. Well, I'm trusting God in this, and I'm just going to leap out and step out in faith. Neither one of those extremes is, is wise. Neither one of those extremes is where we, we want to be. We want to be in the middle where we walk in wisdom. We don't avoid danger, but we don't rush into it either. That's exactly what Jesus does. He knows the timing of his death, but isn't charge into Jerusalem and presume upon the Lord either. That it, This is a confident wisdom that we see in place. It's not cowardice, cloaked as wisdom, casting itself off as wisdom, and it is not foolishness cloaked in the language of faith either. Uh, I went to Bible college with a a guy who showed up when I was in third year. He showed up for his first year. And uh, I'll just call him Darren because that was his name. And he uh, he was a zealous young man, very zealous. Had gotten saved just a few months prior to going to Bible college. And in the middle of Saskatchewan where it, it, it dips down in the temperature to almost absolute zero at night where the molecules do not even move and the wind is is blowing, and it is so cold that your skin will freeze in a matter of, of moments, not hours, but moments, uh, he would walk or hike from the school 45 minutes into town to the nearest coffee shop where he would go in and pass out tracks and hand out stuff, and he would be gone late into the evening, late into the evening. He would leave when the coffee shop closed down at 10 or 11 or whatever it was and start walking out and just trust God for a ride or trust God to get him there alive. And he would arrive back at the school. He'd sleep through his classes the next day. And all of that he did, as, as, as in my opinion, it was cloaked as zeal. It was cloaked as faith, but it was utter folly. Look, I'm not against witnessing to people or passing out tracks in a coffee shop. But there has to be some prudence and wisdom in that. And you can't run headlong into danger and then cloak it as faith and say, well, I'm going to trust God in this when you put yourself in a dangerous position. At the same time, you don't avoid danger. You don't avoid danger and say, well, this is just, I'm just trying to be wise. You don't run from duty. Well, that's the balance that the Lord Jesus walks right here in going into Jerusalem secretly, as it were, under the cloak, quietly, away from the crowds, away from the caravan. He didn't arrive with his family. He didn't leave Galilee with a lot of fanfare. He didn't arrive in Jerusalem with a lot of fanfare. He just crept in, not under the cover of darkness, not because he's a coward, but because that he is executing the Father's timing. By the way, the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, both describe this journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Mark says, from there he went out and began to go through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know about it. That's Mark's description of Jesus leaving Galilee, heading toward Jerusalem. And then Mark includes the fact that uh, Jesus was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise just three days later. But they did not understand his statement, and they were afraid of, to ask him. So that's Mark's description of this journey. Jesus is leaving Galilee, and on the way to Jerusalem, six months prior to his death, he begins to teach his disciples. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of sinners. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. And he's teaching his disciples this, and he was not willing that anybody should know about it. He, he just left quietly. Luke says in Luke chapter 9 that when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9.51. And by the way, this is the journey, this is the trip into Jerusalem where Jesus, passing through the regions of Samaria, sent out two of his disciples ahead to a village to prepare a place for him, and they would, the Samaritans would not receive him because he was going to Jerusalem. And that's when James and John said, should we call down fire out of heaven on them? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's what happened on this journey, Luke chapter 9. So Jesus arrived in Jerusalem secretly, undercover, as it were, quietly, executing the Father's timing. Now look what the Jews were doing, verse, thir- verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Now, what was their intention? 
We know from verse 1 they want to kill him. That was their intention. They're looking for him. You can imagine the high priest and the officers and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. Everybody who hated Jesus was on high alert. And they are mingling amongst the crowds. They're hanging out around the gates. They're down in the marketplaces. They're inquiring. They're asking about him. And the fact that they wanted to find him because they wanted to kill him was the worst kept secret in all of Jerusalem at this feast. Because verse 25 says that the people were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? The common people knew what the intention of the leaders was. It was to find Jesus, to seize him, and to put some plan into action where they could kill him justly and get the people behind such an action. This was their intention a full six months before Jesus was ever crucified. And they're saying, where is he? We want to find him. They're looking for him. They're studying him. Now, is it possible even that their intention to kill him could be executed? Is it possible for their intention to find fruition, to to come to pass? It's not. Why? Because once again, it's the Father's timing, right? Everything is going to happen in the Father's timetable. We see this all the way through chapter 7. The officers go to arrest him, and the the Sanhedrin sends the officers to arrest Jesus, and they come back empty-handed. They're unsuccessful. The people are still divided. Every attempt that they make to lay hands on him or to seize him is 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 frustrated in some way because it was not the Father's timing. And listen, the same is true of you and I in this sense, that before the father, before the day of your appointed death, you, you cannot die and you will not die. Do you realize that? Before God decides to take you, you are immortal. It does not matter what anybody else does to you. It doesn't matter what anybody else plans for you. It doesn't matter what you do. If the Father has determined not to take you, you cannot die. At the same time, when God decides that He's going to kill you, you cannot live one moment past when He has determined that He is going to snuff out your life. That's the truth. Every day for us is written down in God's book. It is appointed for us. There's no such thing as an untimely death. You hear people speak of untimely deaths? What is an un- there's, there's no such thing as an untimely death. If you died, it was perfectly timely. I was listening to a, a news broadcast and the person said that some research was being done to discover a cure for whatever disease it was, heart disease or whatever, a disease that takes 50,000 people a year before their time. Before your time, doesn't the fact that you die, isn't that evidence that that was your time? If it wasn't your time, you wouldn't have died. It's the same thing with Jesus. He could not die one day before the Father determined that he would die. And the same is true of you. You cannot die one day before the Father has determined that you will die. Until the Lord determines to take you, you are immortal. But, does that mean you rush headlong into danger? No, it doesn't. That means you can be confident that in whatever situation God has placed you, wherever He has put you, you are not going to die before your time. But at the same time, you don't go jumping off of buildings and running out and playing in the freeway because your stupidity may be the very means by which God determines to snuff you out. And so, you once again, you walk that line, that that line between the two extremes of being prudent and wise and judicious and yet having a confidence. And that confidence is well-placed. That I, I can't die before my time, so my life is in God's hands and it's in nobody else's hands and there's no other hands that I would rather that it be in. So Jesus secretly attended the feast in Jerusalem. The Jews were seeking Him in Jerusalem. And now look at the third group, and this is the people. Verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning Him. Much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. The word grumble means to speak under your breath. It's used in chapter 6 to speak of that discontented mumbling, the complaining, the complaining grumbling. Now, no doubt there were some in Jerusalem, maybe those who thought he was a deceiver, who were complaining about him and his effect upon the crowds. And the fact that this whole 
feast celebration was revolving in the minds of people around Jesus and not around the festivity itself. He obviously detracted from the festivities, his very presence or the the fact that he might even show up. People were likely grumbling and complaining about that. But the word grumble there, though it can mean to complain, to speak under your breath and complain and mumble and grumble about something with a discontentedness, it doesn't have to mean that. It can mean simply to speak under your breath about something. And that's how I think John is using it here. Verse 13 says, Nobody spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. I think John is just describing how they were talking about it, and they were talking about Jesus, but it was like this, quietly, looking around, for fear of the Jews. We don't want to hear of the Jews. We don't want the Jews hear us speaking about him, either positively or negatively, especially positively. J.C. Ryle says that probably describes the, the speaking of those who had a good, a favorable opinion of Jesus. Those who thought that he was a good man. They certainly did not want their opinion to be heard among the elite, among the leaders of the nation, for that would bring certain ramifications and, and implications of being kicked out of the synagogue and being hated by them. They didn't want to associate with him, and so they're, they're grumbling. They're speaking quietly. Nobody's speaking openly because they feared him. And the sentiment among the crowd, all of these people gathered in Jerusalem, the sentiment among the crowd divided into two camps. Some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Verses 12. Verse 12. He is a good man. On the contrary, he deceives the people. Now, both of those opinions of Jesus are obviously completely opposite. And we'll deal with each one of them. But I want you to notice right at the outset, both of them are wrong. Both of them are wrong. Now, before you drag me outside and stone me for suggesting that Jesus was not a good man, let me explain to you what I mean by that. When they said he is a good man, here's what they meant. He's doing good deeds. He's doing good things. He's teaching good things. He's saying good things. He's not living an immoral, profligate, uh, debauched or depraved lifestyle. He's not involved in drunkenness or lewd sins. He's not leading people into those sins. Look, what he is doing in his, his miracles and his healings and his feeding of the multitudes and all of that stuff, every sign, his exorcisms, all the stuff that he's doing and saying, it's all good. He's a good man. Just leave him alone. And they're, they're not impugning his motives at all. But they're saying he's just what he's doing is good and he's not leading people astray. So let him have his, his goodness. Just leave him alone. The problem with that assessment of Jesus is not that he wasn't a good man and they thought he was. The problem with that assessment is that it doesn't go far enough in their assessment of Jesus. Was Jesus a good man? Yeah, he was. He was a good man because he was the God man. And because God is good, Jesus was a good man. But to say that he is a good man is not an adequate assessment of him and his claims or his abilities or who he said he was. To say that he is a good man doesn't go far enough because he was not just a good man, he was God. You're probably familiar with the the liar, lunatic, lord trifecta that C.S. Lewis kind of popularized. He didn't originate it, but he popularized it. We've mentioned it here before just to review. Given the claims that Jesus made about being the Son of God, the divine Son of one substance and nature and equal with the Father in all the Father's works and all the Father's abilities and power, Given the claims that Jesus made, one of two things is true. Number one, either those claims are true or those claims are false. All right? If those claims are false, then one of two things is true. Jesus knew they were false or he didn't know they were false. If he knew that they were false, then that made him a liar. And we would never call a liar a good person. Because if he was not God, but he claimed to be God and knew he wasn't God, even though he claimed to be God, he was a mass deceiver, not a good man. But if it's false and he didn't know that it was false, in other words, he was ignorant of it, he thought he was God, but he wasn't a God, you never call that type of a person a morally good person. You call him a mentally deranged person. It's somebody who thinks like they're a superhero or a door jam or a, 
or a race car or something like that. They have a wrong assessment of themselves. So if the claims were false and he knew they were false, he's a liar. If they were false and he didn't know they were false, he's a lunatic. In neither case is he a good man. At least one other option, his claims were true, that what he said was true, in which case he is the sovereign God in human flesh. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. But if he had given the claims that he made, there's no way that he can be just a good man because he doesn't leave that open. He must be good because he is God and because he is God in human flesh. You see, a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, a Unitarian, a Christian scientist, even a Muslim would all affirm that Jesus was a good man. But are they right? Well, they're right as far as they go, but they don't go far enough to be right-right. You want to be right-right, you have to assume that he is good because he is God. So the crowd's assessment of him is wrong. He was a good man, but he is good because he is, is God. It's far too minimalistic. But the one thing that this crowd that assumed that he was a good man, the one thing that they didn't do was impugn his motives. But that can't be said of the second group of people who said, no, no, on the contrary, he is a deceiver and he leads the people astray. Now what they're saying about Jesus is, everything that he has done and everything that he has said is false. He is a false prophet. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is a deceiver. He is a charlatan. He is a magician. He is a trickster. And they're also assigning blame or impugning his motives in saying that what he was doing was all for the wrong reason or purpose. You see, a false prophet, a false teacher, always does what they do for wrong motives. The motives of a false teacher can never glorify God. They are either selfish or they are satanic. And sometimes a false teacher doesn't even know that their motives are selfish and satanic. Sometimes they do. But in calling him a deceiver, they are impugning not just what he did, but impugning his motives. And they are saying all of the good that he claims to be doing and all of the good things that he claims to be saying are just a facade to hide his truly sinister motives and his truly sinister actions. And that is to lead people away from the true God of Israel, away from the one true God, and away from his word. Now for anybody who loves Christ, that is, that is hard to even say what they were saying because it is so far away from the reality of who Jesus was and what he was doing and the light that he was. It, it, it's hard to let that even roll off our tongue, to call him a wolf in sheep's clothing. But that is essentially that part of the crowd's assessment of him. He is a deceiver and he leads the people astray. That was actually the assessment of Jesus that pervaded not only during his day, and it pervaded even up to his crucifixion, but that assessment of Jesus would continue all the way into the second century and more with the Jews. Justin Martyr, a second century apologist, wrote in his dialogue with Trypho, a Jew, Justin Martyr said that the Jews had dared to call him a magician and a deceiver of the people. That was into the second century. So that was what was believed about Jesus during his day by many in the crowd, and that was what it was believed about Jesus by the nation a hundred years later. That was the Jewish, that was the Jewish way of describing Jesus, a magician and a deceiver of the people. He tried to lead the people astray. And that origin went back a hundred years, a hundred years to the time of Jesus in the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem where they said, no, 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 he's not a good man. He's leading people astray. You notice the division in the crowd? Jesus is, always has been, and always will be a polarizing figure. A polarizing figure. He didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He sets members of the household against each other so that a man's enemies will be the people of his own household. Because Jesus is a polarizing figure. You just bring him into the discussion and instantly people begin to take sides. It has to be that way. Because he is the rock of offense. So he is either the foundation of somebody's life or he is the rock that grinds the unbeliever to powder. That crushes the unbeliever. He is the light that coming into the world divides all men into believers and unbelievers. 
And the condition of the human heart is revealed with what they do about Jesus. You drop the name of Jesus into the discussion and make his claims the central element of the conversation, and guess what you will find? You will find people respond to him in one of two ways. They either are hostile and they reject him, or they respond with adoration and love. Isn't it ironic that the same person can elicit from one person the most vitriolic hatred that you can possibly imagine, and from another person the most adoring affection that is possible from a human heart? All from one person. Most interesting, isn't it? Jesus is the most polarizing figure that has ever come into human history, and he always will be. J.C. Ryle says this, Christ is and always has been the cause of division of opinion wherever he has come or has been preached. To some he is a savor of life and to others of death. He draws out the true character of mankind. They either like him or dislike him. Strife and conflict of opinion are the certain consequences of the gospel really coming to men with power. End quote. Either like him or they hate him. And your response to Jesus reveals what has happened with your heart. If you respond with love and affection, is because your heart has known the sovereign grace of God that has changed you from darkness to light, and you love Him. And if you respond with hostility and anger and resentment and bitterness and rejection, then it is because your heart is darkened and because you love darkness more than light, you will not come to the light because your deeds will be exposed and you don't want that to happen. He is a polarizing figure. Now, friends, the, the reaction of the crowd was to speak quietly, verse 13, for fear of the Jews. They feared what the Jews would do to them. That is what the fear of man does. It makes you speak quietly. I want people to know what I think of Jesus. We'll keep it quiet. Keep it silent. Keep it on the down low. Let's just keep our opinions and our faith and everything to ourselves, and we will all remain in a nice, quiet bubble for fear of the Jews. That was what they did. They feared the Jewish leadership's reaction. Their desire was to kill Jesus. You can see the hostility that the Jewish leadership responded with later in the chapter, beginning around verse 40, when they had sent officers to arrest Jesus, and the officers came back to the Jews without Jesus. The Jews asked them, where is he? You're supposed to have him in tow. What happened? And the officers said, never has a man spoke like this man. What did they get for that? Yeah, the Jews said, you're being led astray too. You're just like that stupid crowd out there that doesn't know the law of God. And they gave those officers a tongue lashing like you can't believe. I mean, they just excoriate him. And then one of their own, Nicodemus, who stood up and, and really defended not Jesus but the law in saying, our, our law doesn't condemn a man unless it first hears him, does it? And they said to him, what are you, from Galilee? Check and see, no, no prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee. And they gave him a tongue lashing. Then in chapter 9, when Jesus heals the man born blind, which is just shortly after the Feast of Booths, right? Immediately following the Feast of Booths. When Jesus heals the man born blind, his parents are questioned by the Jewish leaders, and what do his parents do? Is this your son? Yes. Is he, was he born blind? Yes. Can he now see? Yes. How did he now see, having been born blind? And what does his parents do? Um, um, they didn't want to affirm anything about Jesus healing their son. Go ask him. Go ask our son. And so they go and they ask the son, and they bring him in, and they begin to grill him. Were you born blind? Yes. Do you now see? Yes. Who healed you? Jesus healed me, he says. And then he defends Jesus. Nobody can do the works of God that this man does unless he comes from God. This I know. I don't know how he did it, but this I know. He comes from God. I was blind. Now I see. And what did the Jews say? They said, you ignorant rube, and they kicked him out of the synagogue. That's what they feared, being expelled. The Jewish leadership held that much sway and control over the people. Listen, friends, it is the same today. You, you can... You want to know how to infuriate people? Just drop Jesus into the discussion. That's it. If you're a sports figure, you want to know how to be criticized for your lack of ability to play, your lack of ability to do anything, what you eat for breakfast, how you brush your teeth, what you wear, the tone of your voice, everything. You want to be criticized for everything under the sun? 
You just make sure that playing good or bad, win or lose, you bring Jesus into the discussion and lift him up, and the world will hate you like nobody's business. In the culture, you want to elicit the hatred of the world? Then drop Jesus into the discussion. Look, if you're a politician or a public figure, you hold some position of power or influence, and you say to people, I'm just going to keep my religious convictions to myself. I'm not going to let them influence my public policy or my decisions or anything that I do. My faith is one arena and my public life is another arena and we'll just keep them separate and I won't bring Jesus into the discussion and I don't believe the Bible has anything to say about the issues of our day or the problems of our nation or the cultural decay around us. I don't believe the Bible is true or literal or any of that. You say that and no problem. You can get elected to the highest office in the land. Not a problem. But if you suggest that the Bible should be taken literally and truly and seriously and that Jesus is the only way and that he is the most important thing to your past, present, and future, if you suggest that, you will be hated like nobody's business. That is a promise. You can excoriate Jesus and submerge a cross in a jar of urine and you will be called artistic and creative and edgy and provocative and a deep thinker and somebody thinks outside the box. And you'll be hailed and put on websites and on television and interviewed. But if you suggest for one moment that Jesus is central to your life and that you take his claims seriously and you believe in him and that he is the only way, you will be hated and rejected and you'll be called an ignorant rube, an uneducated maroon, some idiot who believes in the archaic patriarchal notion of a God in the gaps, magic genie flying spaghetti monster in the sky. That's how they'll label you. And how many of us have let opportunities slip by and have not testified to the true reality of the nature of Christ and what he has done because we fear that some ignorant rube who someday will likely spend eternity in hell might think less of us for that. The fear of man is a powerful thing. It is a sin It is rooted in pride, and friends, it is something that you and I must mortify and fight against because it dishonors Christ. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? It It's the exact same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Why is that? It's because the heart of man is the same. That's that's the issue. The gospel comes and it divides people and causes strife and conflict, and people respond with hatred and animosity. Is the problem the gospel? That's not the problem. The problem is that men love darkness. And they hate the light, and they don't want to come to the light because their deeds will be exposed. And they hate God, and any mention of Him elicits their hatred, and people respond to Him with hatred. The problem is the sinful heart of man. It's the same 2,000 years ago when the truth came into the world, and the light came into the world, and they rejected Him, and it's the same today. You ought to expect that hatred. and Get used to it. And don't fear it. And mortify that sin of pride that causes you to fear men and what other people will think. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have saved us from our sin and delivered us into light. And now make us bold, we ask, in the proclamation of truth to not fear men. Give us, give us wisdom and prudence and a confidence in you and your timing and your purposes and to be bold in the proclamation of truth that you might be glorified through us. We recognize that fearing men and avoiding danger can sometimes be cloaked as wisdom and we don't want to do that. We want to mortify and to kill that sin of pride which causes us to fear mortal men. May you instill in our hearts a healthy fear of you, our God, and may we seek to do all for your glory and honor that you might be pleased, that you might be glorified in our lives. May we be committed to that above all else. We want to strive to be men and women who will hear on the final day, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you for the reward that awaits those who faithfully serve you and testify to your grace. Count us and make us among that number by work of your grace and your strength, we pray in Christ's name.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.